context of where we're at, we've been journeying to the cross and now uh, we're right on the precipice of getting to the cross. And we're about to step into this last moments before the cross and just, just days ahead of it. And all of these things are culminating and telling a story. Who is Jesus? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Who is the Messiah? He's the suffering servant that came to give his life a ransom for many. And now we see the journey to the cross, and Jesus has been proven. The questions have ended, and now we come to a little place outside of Jerusalem, Bethany. And this is where our story picks up. If you found your place there, let's begin reading in verse number 1, and we'll stand together if you're able in honor of the Word of God. After two days, the feast of the Passover of unleavened bread and the chief priests and the scribes saw how they might take him by craft and put him to death. They said, not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at meat, there came a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very costly. She broke the box and poured it on his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of ointment made? For it might have been sold for more than 300 pence and given to the poor. And they murmured against her. Jesus said, let her alone. Why trouble you her? She hath wrought a good work on me. For you have the poor with you always. Whensoever you will, you may do good, do them good, but me you have not always. She hath done what she could. She came aforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Verily I say unto you, wheresoever this gospel shall be preached throughout the whole world, this also that she hath done shall be spoken of for a memorial of her. And let's pray together. Father, we ask you to add your blessing on the whole of the service, but specifically on the reading of Scripture right now. And Lord, we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, do a work in us and through us. And we'll praise you for your work already. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. You can be seated there. When we open the text here, we find several different competing ideas of what should happen to the Lord. After two days, the feast of the Passover of unleavened bread and the chief priests and scribes saw how they might take him by craft and put him to death. They're looking to kill him. So some want him dead. Some want to set him straight on his doctrine. Judas wants to sell him for money, but Mary wants to worship him. And we see the contrast of the personalities and the, the heart motivations that are taking place. The Bible says that this was two days prior to the feast of the Passover, and we see Mark's gospel setting this account here in the middle of this story at this time for the purpose of highlighting her worship, not necessarily in a chronological order. And if you know the, the New Testament and you're new to reading the New Testament, you may have read Matthew and then get to Mark and you're thinking, hey, I just read this a minute ago. Uh, and then you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and I, I thought I read this already, and it's not a repeating story, but it's a repetition of the same story. But then we come to John, and John comes at it in a whole different way, and he's giving us the nuanced stories of who Christ is and who the I am is, and he puts it on display for us. 
Literally what we have in the Gospels is the ability to hold up the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as a fine diamond, we turn and see all the facets of Christ on display. And here again, he places this for a purpose in our text and tells us, I want you to see this extravagant worship. The great number of people that had traveled to Jerusalem was something that is definitely on the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees. They tell us that very possibly um, the crowds had soared from anywhere from 50,000, 50 to 60,000 normal uh, uh, residents in this area to over 250,000. You can imagine the influx of people and the crowds that had gathering. The word of Jesus, this miracle-working uh, rabbi, has spread, and they don't want to cause an, a stir-up. The intentions of the rulers is not veiled at all. They want him dead. They want to have him killed. Their reservation, though, is they don't want to do this on a feast day because there's so many people here, and if we try to take him in, our, in custody now, these people are going to get upset. We're going to be overrun. And so they're pushing back on how to go about this. And, of course, we're going to see that, that Judas comes in and provides them a prime opportunity to take him in private and to arrest him. And what will follow is an illegal trial and then a mockery of a trial, a sham of a trial, and then finally turned over to the Gentiles and the crucifixion that follows. All of these things they think is working out just as they planned it. And it's all falling into place for them. Notice here they would not push forward because they feared people. And let me say this morning, when you violate your conscience, you will be plagued with doubt and second guessing. But when you are convinced that you stand upon right, you can do so without hesitation. And here these men are, they're living in this betrayal that they know is a betrayal. And to sum it up this way, sin lacks conviction. It lacks conviction. We're not willing to stand for sin. And there is a, there's a lack of that. And let me, let me just challenge us this morning as believers. Let us be sure of where we stand. That we don't stand on man's opinion. We don't stand on what the pastor thinks about something. We don't stand on, well, this is what I've always believed. But we want to stand upon the word of God. That we stand, this is what the scripture says. This is where I stand. This is why I believe it. And I, I would challenge you this morning that if you don't know why you believe what you believe, then get that settled in the word of God. Let it be rooted down. And I, I challenge us not to be tossed about with every wind of doctrine, but rooted in the word of God. They sat at meat. They had come to have dinner together, and the, the plotting of the Pharisees and the scribes is taking place away in verse number 2. Uh, verse number 3, now we see, and being in Bethany, the house of Simon the leper, they sat at meat. This is uh, an interesting little phrase here. Simon the leper. What are you doing eating with a leper? That's probably not a good idea. Uh, this is a man, leprosy was highly contagious, and I said in the first service, a mask won't help you with that. <laughs> but um, don't take that out of context. I'm just talking about leprosy right now, all right? I don't want to end up on the news somewhere, you know. Uh, but the fact is, this leprosy this man is sitting with, uh, there, it would not have been something they would have had dinner with. But he was known as Simon the leper, so no doubt he'd had leprosy for some time to be known as Simon the leper. And yet I believe what's taking place here, and though we're not told, is that Jesus is coming to contact with Simon the leper, and he's no longer a leper. 
that he is healed and Jesus is seated with him at the man who was healed of his leprosy. And we see this taking place. And by the way, aren't you glad that Jesus comes to where we are? He touches our uncleanness and our uncleanness becomes clean. He's not defiled by our sin, but we are cleansed by his holiness. He comes in and changes everything. And here Jesus comes in and now seated at Simon the leper's house. So we see them sitting at meat. Now we see a woman. I I just think there's so much that could be unpacked in this, and I hope you'll bear with me as we do. Not a committee. Not a committee of people saying, hey guys, let's get together a team of people and go down and worship Jesus. And I think if we collect some money, we can get an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and we can take that down there and we we can anoint his feet. What do you guys say? Do I have a motion that we move forward with this? Do I have a second? All in favor, say aye. That's not what's taking place here. She's not gathering a committee of people around her to go and worship. She's not gathering a a church family to go down and do this. This is not a, a fellowship of people. She's not looking for a crowd to go with her. But she goes of her own accord, by herself, on her own, into someone else's home and announces with, with no fanfare, she just walks in and begins to anoint the body of Jesus. And we see with the marrying of the other texts together that she anoints his head and she anoints his feet and she wipes his feet with her hair and all of this is taking place and it's an extravagant worship as she pours it all out and the Bible tells us that the house was filled with the aroma. This woman was not a committee and she was, by the way, she came of her own choice regardless of her status. Now, I wish I could tell you that in this first century time period that women's standing was in a good standing, but it was not. And, and I think in so many cases, Christianity gets a very bad rap because we teach that there are roles for the genders and that God intends for there to be roles in genders. And that is, by the way, not a uh, criticism of women or men. It is simply how God made it so that things can flourish. And God gave us roles for a purpose. And so because of those roles, we stand back and say, well, man, you guys are oppressive to women. The farthest thing is from the truth. The farthest thing is from the truth in the mind of our Lord. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ is on mission. Now, we're told in John 12, 1 through 8, that this is Mary. We're not told in this text it's Mary, but we, we compare Scripture with Scripture and we find out this is Mary. And you know Mary. Mary's the sister of Lazarus who was dead and was raised from the grave. And Mary's the sister of Martha. Martha who was cumbered about with much work and she was busy at her work. But we find Mary consistently and repetitively at the same place when we see her. She's at the feet of Jesus worshiping. And time and time we see her worshiping at the feet of Jesus. And here, now she is again a committee of one going to worship Jesus in spite of the cultural taboo against women even stepping into this role. It was such a place where women were treated in fear that Jesus has already addressed the abuse of the law of divorce. And when you look at the Old Testament and you see the Old Testament laws on divorce, they are not about just justifying divorce for any cause, but they're actually about economically providing for women who've been put away. And Jesus is very clear when they come to him saying, hey, can we divorce for any cause? And Jesus says, no, you have a heart of adultery, and you need to address your heart of adultery first and stop taking advantage. And he is doing what he can to protect and to exalt, not to push down. 
It was such a tenor against women in this day that a rabbinical prayer that was prayed often was this. I thank you, God, I am not a dog, a Gentile. I thank you I'm not a slave, and I thank you I'm not a woman. And that was a consistent prayer that was prayed. How many of you that gives you warm fuzzies when you hear that, right? No, you're like, good gracious, how harsh. And yet Jesus comes in and he sees this culture going on. This woman comes in to anoint his feet. Jesus does not show disdain to her. For the woman comes to honor and respect him. And Jesus then in turn honors her. He makes a memorial of her. He says, hey, wherever the gospel is preached, this woman will be spoken of. Because she came in to worship me and she got a glimpse of where things were going before the rest of the apostles did. I believe she had a taste of what was happening. I don't know that she understood all that the resurrection meant, but Jesus had looked at her and said, I am the resurrection and the life. She had seen her brother raised from the dead. And this woman comes, Mary comes with worship and pours out this ointment upon Jesus. And I think when we look at Jesus and his treatment of women women through the Bible and other passages, he looks at the Pharisee and he says, look, you gave me no oil for my head. You gave me no oil for my beard. But this woman, who's been forgiven much, loves much. He speaks to the woman at the well. He speaks uh, to women around him. When he's hanging on the cross, he looks at his mother and he says to John, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. And he cares for his own mother. And Jesus is exalting the standing of women. And by the way, I think when the Bible, when Bible gospel is preached, when Christianity is preached, then the station of women is increased, not diminished. It's lifted up, and, and, and I think we've, we've lost something in our day when we do not honor and respect the women that God has put in our lives. We're missing the point. Jesus was honoring her, and when we come to the very first news of the resurrection, who are we going to entrust that news to? He gave it to women who came to the tomb and saw the empty tomb. He said, now go tell the apostles. And so God honors them historically and, 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 and repetitively. He's honoring them. Our culture today is not making a difference between men and women. They do not honor the roles between the two. And let me say this. Women will not be protected by this. And I know there's a whole contingency to say, well, I don't need to be protected. That's fine and good until you need to be protected. God gave strength, generally speaking, to men for the purpose of providing and protecting. I'm very well aware that there are women I do not want to fight, okay? All right? I'm very well aware of that, all right? I'm not, I'm not taking challenges from all comers, all right? But on a general basis, God gave strength to men. And he gave it that they might provide and protect, not to lord over and abuse And let me say this, just because some wicked men have used the authority of husband in a home to abuse a wife doesn't mean that God's system is broken. It means those men are broken. And they're sinful before God. Let's not throw out God's plan because some people abuse God's plan. The reality is moms hurt children. That doesn't mean we should get rid of moms. 
And it's a grief to my heart when we see our society today that cannot distinguish between a man and a woman. And now we're saying to men that you can claim to be a woman and do whatever you want to and go into the locker rooms you want to and play on the sports team you want to. And you mark my words, this is not going to be the freedom for women. It will be the oppression of women. And there is no way, I don't care who you are, and I I grieve for your confusion. And I wish we could spend time and hours of the day to open the word of God and let the gospel shed some light into your soul. Let me say this this morning, no man, regardless of what he calls him, has any business in a locker room with my daughter. We are not going to produce freedom in that regard. We're going, to do, we're going to return to oppression again. And let me just challenge men. We need to stand up and say no. We need to say no. You're not going to oppress my children in that way. You're not going to oppress my wife in that way. I think we need to do so boldly. We need to do so with courage. And we need to do so with grace. But we need to do so. We need to challenge and teach our young men that the strength that God gave them is a strength not to do as they please and to share how smart they are and tell everything they know and to oppress everybody around them because they can be louder and talk faster and be stronger. But they use that strength and that power that God has given them for great responsibility of providing and protecting in a home. And I challenge you, I challenge us men, let us not abdicate our role. And regardless of the confusion of this world, anytime we leave God's order, we always head to chaos. We're always going to go to chaos. Jesus was not, that society had put women down at the bottom. Christ is now lifting up and putting them in the proper role and place. And when we come to the place of greatest controversy, and literally when we think of in a, a New Testament church, I believe, according to Scripture, there's two places that God asks men to fill the role in, and that is a deacon, and that is a pastor, elder, bishop. And those two roles, those are the only two roles God asks men to fill. Women lead in so many other areas in our church, there is no way in the world we could get by with what we do without the labor of the women in our church. We are not holding those roles because we are better. We probably are given those roles because we're weaker. And God shows himself strong through our weakness. And so that is not God's attempt to oppress. That is God's attempt to say God's given you roles to function in. And when you function in those roles, I'm glorified and there's order in society. Now, I don't say all of that as a side note this morning just to toss it at you and say, now you deal with it. But I am going to say to us this morning that this role here is Jesus honoring this dear woman who's coming and saying, hey, she's going to be remembered no matter where she goes. And so we see a woman. We see a box. Notice what she brings with you, if you would, as she comes into verse number three. And they were sitting at meat, and the woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard. Can you hand that to me? Thank you, sweetheart. This was given to me a few years ago by Miss Dottie Kiefer. This is alabaster. And it would be something very similar to this. She had an alabaster box of women. This is uh, kind of a clay-like material that's formed and shaped and carved into whatever they wanted to be in. I think the ESV calls it a flask. It's made of this material. It's a very hard material. Uh, but she would take this box of spikenard. The word spikenard comes from the idea of an uh, ointment that was made in India and shipped all the way back over to uh, Israel, and so it would have been extremely expensive. 
stored in this alabaster box, uh, made in India, now shipped back. The, it would be a tapered bottle, uh, a little bit like this one, but with a, with a narrower taper at the top. And when one wanted to use it, it could be broken open and be poured out. The ointment of the spiker, the idea here is that it was genuine, it was undiluted. It was the real thing. I, this wasn't brute cologne, okay? And you know, and if you use brute men, we'll have a conversation after church, all right? Uh, so, so I do use brute on occasion. So but when I'm camping, it's, it's a good thing to keep bears away. So, uh, so the, uh, but you got some brute cologne and you put that on or it's not Old Spice. It's not even knockoff polo, okay? It, it's, this stuff is, this is the expensive stuff. How expensive? 300 pence. They're saying we could have sold that for 300 pence. If a penny is a day's wage, and we find in other accounts in Scripture that men work for a penny for a day, then we add that up to 300, we're talking almost a year's salary is coming in in this one box of ointment. And you can imagine that kind of cash in hand. She has this. It would have been very precious to Mary. Not only precious in its value, but precious to her. Very likely this is a family heirloom and something of this nature would be stored and it would argue that the longer you kept it, the greater the value would be. And she takes this box of ointment of spikenard and she brings it with her into this place. Very costly, John tells us. Very costly. You know, and their thought is coming, man, we could do a lot with that. There's a lot we could do with that ointment. I mean, that's expensive. You know, I can imagine the thought. You know what, how about, how about we not break that open and I'll buy you some Old Spice and we'll use that instead, right? You know, we'll just, we'll put the $12 cologne on him and who's going to know the difference, right? Here she comes with this very expensive box of ointment. And here's what the Bible says. And she break it. She break the box poured it on his head. The Bible tells us other passages that not only on his head, but on his feet. And I, I get the picture here. It says she broke it and poured it. This was not something that she broke open and put a little on her thumb and dabbed it here, or put a little more on her thumb and put some on his feet and kind of just sprinkled some of the room or sprayed a little bit and walked through it. You know, that's not what we're talking about here. But she broke it open. There was a point of no return and it was spilled out over top of him. It was poured out on his head and poured out on his feet. And, and the Bible tells us other places that the house was filled with the aroma of what she had poured out. It was not a little dab will do you, but it was poured out upon her and it filled the house with his ointment. I want you to see the indignation of some that followed. And it's always going to be the case. Anytime someone goes to extravagant worship, somebody's going to have a problem with it. Look what happens in verse number four. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, why was this waste of ointment made? Why was this waste of ointment made? Why are you pouring this out all at one time? This is far too extravagant, far too expensive, far too much waste is made. The worship that she had for the Lord is called waste. Isn't it interesting here that the practical is promoted over the extravagant? Well, you know, here's what I think we could do. We could save the box of ointment. We'll go out and buy some cheaper cologne, and then we'll just kind of space that out. Okay, you don't want to save that one. Okay, I get it. Let's not break it open all at once. Let's find a way to store it, and we'll worship him several times with the same thing. 
And I can see the practical laying out. Now, we're told in John's account of this that, that Judas is the, is the loudest voice on this complaint. And Judas says, hey, why wasn't this sold and the money given to the poor? And, and then the Bible tells us in John, knowing Judas personally, John writes, but he was a thief. And this he said not that he cared for the poor, but he held the bag and he kept what was in it. Judas wasn't about helping the poor. He was about helping himself. And he wanted to be able to sell that and put it in his pocket. And I can hear, you know, maybe the, the grumbling that's going on. The greedy wish to hinder the extravagant worship. They want to do what they can to stop it. Well, I just think that's too much to give. That's too much to invest. I mean, Pastor, really, are we going to do all that for missions? Are we going to do all that for people whose churches we'll never get to see? That's just too much to invest. I think many worthy pursuits are used to excuse us from doing what is most important. Now let me say this. Worship that originates, or rather service that originates in worship, is far more sustainable than service that originates in determination. When we are worshiping our way into service, we can sustain that. Because we have a good why for what we're doing. So often we get like Martha, Martha, you're cumbered about with so many things, and they're missing the point. Many pursuits are used to excuse, well, what about the poor? Let me say this morning, the end of men is the glory of God. Our whole pursuit is his glory, not our own. Yes, let's give to the poor. Yes, let's invest in them and minister that way. But ministry without worship is not ministry. That we must minister through our worship not around it. If you're truly cared for the poor, why did you just now bring it up? Judas wasn't cared for the poor. This is a thinly availed excuse for a greedy and covetous and worshipless heart. Anytime a heart of worship reaches out to love extravagantly, somebody begins to murmur. Always. Look what it says here in the next, in verse number five, the end of the text here. And having been given to the poor, he says, and they murmured against her. Who's they, first off? Well, the other apostles, I would assume. The other people at dinner that day. Maybe even Simon himself. Whoever is sitting around this table, they start murmuring. I don't know what murmuring sounds to you, murmuring. Man, I can't believe they did that. Did you see what she did? I mean, where was she a few weeks ago when we were trying to feed all those people? We could have sold this and bought a bunch of bread. Man, we had to borrow a boat. I had to go fishing just to pay the taxes. You know, she, I mean, she'd been holding on to this for a while. Why wouldn't she give it then? And then she just pours it out on his feet. And it's just this murmuring going on. And you could see, you could hear the rumble that's going on behind the scenes. But I want you to see next is the instruction of our Lord. Leave her alone. I love that. Leave her alone. Stop it. Jesus called them out. He looks at them and he says, don't, don't do this. Look at verse number six. And Jesus says, let her alone. Why trouble ye her? She hath wrought a good work on me. 
For you have the poor with you always, and whensoever you will, you may do them good, but me you have not always. She hath done what she could. She hath come beforehand to anoint my body to the burying. Leave her alone, he said. This is a good work. It may not be practical enough in your eyes, but it is high-minded and is heartfelt. They will always be time to, to, to do good for the poor. And by the way, you men could have been doing this before. Why all of a sudden the passion for the poor? She has done what she could before the burial. She will be remembered. This is what Jesus lays out that will take place. She has done what she could. Now, I'm looking at this, and you can come to your conclusion. You're sensible, and you can read. But I think she understood a little more about the resurrection and the crucifixion than the apostles did. I think she's looking at it, and she's saying the time is close. I don't know what this all looks like, but if I'm going to worship him, i got just a short window to do it in. And she breaks the bottle open, and she pours it out. And she pours out everything she had upon him in worship. Now, let me say this morning, we are not going to learn sacrificial worship from over-busy people. Be still and know that I am God. I know that life is busy. But let me challenge you, if it be in the stillness of the morning or the quiet of the evening, stop and worship. Because it is in those moments of worship that we can hear him saying, Martha, Martha, you are cumbered about with many things. But one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part. And how many times do we rush ahead and we miss the point? We're not going to learn a heart of worship from over-busy people or being over-busy our, ourselves. You cannot conceal a lack of relationship with steady action. Just because you're moving doesn't mean we're accomplishing what we're called to accomplish. Now, let me just stop and say, if that, needs, if that accusation needs to sit anywhere or admonition needs to rest anywhere, it needs to rest right here. It needs to rest right here with me as your pastor this morning because I have the privilege of reading the Bible and studying the Bible for a living. And if I'm not careful, I'll be busy about preparing and busy about laying it out. And it's not a heart of worship that is being done, but a busyness in ministry. Our staff, we talk about this often. It's very easy for us to just get busy in the things of ministry instead of getting busy with the person. One of my hearts... My heart's desire is to see ministry that is life-giving, not life-taking. I believe that the gospel has power to give life to those who are preaching the gospel, to those who are ministering in the gospel, and to the families of those who are ministering in the gospel. I don't believe it's one or the other. And this morning, if you're struggling in some area of ministry and you're just like, I just don't have the strength to do it anymore, let me challenge you to worship him. Let him be the source of that strength. Let him be the light that propels you forward. Let me say this, we're not going to learn sacrificial worship from over-busy people. We're not going to learn it from selfish and covetous hearts. They're looking for all kinds of reasons to excuse not pouring this out. But God owns our time. He owns our talent. He owns our treasure. And he deserves our worship. 
Friend, I promise you this, we're not going to pour out too much worship on him. We're not going to give so much that like, oh, well, we gave it all away. Now we don't have anything to give tomorrow. He's the one that supplies it all. And so we worship freely knowing that we're not selfish, we're not holding on to, we're not coveting, but we rejoice in what God's doing. By the way, we don't need to be covetous toward other churches, other ministries, but we rejoice when God blesses another ministry, we rejoice when God uses another ministry, and we say, to God be the glory, great things he's done. This is where God planted us. Let's minister here for his glory. Not a covetous heart, but a rejoicing and a generous heart. We're not going to worship. We're not going to view worship rightly or have a sacrificial worship when we're following the loudest voices in the crowd. Judas is the loudest voice in this crowd. And Judas was a thief. And he held on to the bag and wanted to take what he wanted from that. And so many of the other apostles were chiming in with him. And we're not going to find a heart of worship being a fault-finding critic. We know the danger of the tongue. It's been spelled out so many times. This morning, let's not be critics of those around us. Critics of those who would do the work of ministry. Well, I, I know that person over there, I mean, they're just being fanatical about Jesus. Somebody said, you know what a fanatic is? It's somebody who loves Jesus more than you do. It's somebody who wants to sacrifice more than you. It's somebody who wants to mean business. Well, I, I just think they study the Bible too much. I just think they pray too much. I just think they, they just make too much about this. Let, let, let's not be critical. I'm not saying that zeal doesn't need to be tempered. I'm not saying that wisdom doesn't need to come into our, our world. It ought to come in, and there ought to be wisdom. And yet, we ought not to stand back as critics discouraging those. One of the grievous things of my heart is to see a young man want to do something for God or a young lady feel like God may be calling them into some kind of ministry and mom and dad over the shoulder saying, I don't do that. It'll never pay. Who gave you that child? Let's not have a heart that would hold back but say, God, whatever you're doing in them, you do that work and God, you call them and God, you sustain them. I don't know what extravagant worship God would have you to do. I don't know if maybe God might be calling somebody in this room in the next year to go to a mission field or to plant a church or to do something that only God can do through you. But whatever it is, don't hold back because there's gripers and complainers. Don't let the critics discourage you in the work. Extravagant worship will make no sense to a critical person. We grieve the heart of God with our harsh tongues. So we see this woman... The only heart that understands extravagant worship is the one that is seated at the feet of Jesus. She understood extravagant worship. She had been there before. She had seen Martha running about in the house, and now she comes again at the feet of Jesus and takes probably the most priceless thing that she had, breaks it open, and in one fell swoop pours it out. Can you imagine? We see the response but see, here's the reason I think she could do that. It's because she understood that that thing of Spikenard was not the most valuable vessel in that room. But the most valuable vessel in that room was the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think she understood in some way he was about to be broken and spilled out. And she broke that vessel open and poured out that worship on him, and it filled the house. But in just a few days, our Lord is broken open, 
and grace filled the earth. The gospel message began to go to the ends of the earth. And the only hope you and I have is the fact that Jesus was sacrificial and poured himself out. And in that same manner, let us be broken and spilled out for him. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the sufficiency of it. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would do a work in our hearts that only you can do. And we'll praise you for what you're doing already. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. Would you stand with me?